but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. This is episode 140. At the start of the year I said to you that maybe we could stretch it and get to 150 this year. Not gonna happen. Yeah, I don't think so. Nope. Quality over quantity. We're just kind of fatigued at this point. Too. Kind of? <laughs> totally fatigued. This season goes on and on, as you know, all the way up until December 22nd when Rafa and Novak will play for the Kingdom of Saud. Oh my god. We'll get to that. We will. This week, though, let's talk about the WTA Finals. I feel like Singapore, in its final year, gave a pretty incredible account of itself. It did. It had going for it a pretty level playing field. A field with a lot of women who brought a lot of similar things to the table. And then you add to the mix a surface that necessitates long points. You're not going to get a lot of blowouts, and that's not what we got. We got a lot of long, drawn-out, hard-fought matches. We did. The surface is one thing. It's my least favorite part of the tournament, but everything else really came through. Like, the this is one of the best examples I've ever seen of a round-robin, of a competitive, interesting round-robin tournament, where Angelique Kerber played really well throughout the tournament and did not make the semifinals. There were so many contingencies going on in, you know, who's going to qualify, who's not, and a lot of surprising near misses. One of the interesting stats that I saw this week from Christopher Cleary on Twitter, if we consider the five biggest tournaments to be the, the four Grand Slams and then the year in championships, since 1972, when the year in championships debuted, I believe, there have only been three seasons where all five tournaments were won by five different women. And that's happened the last two years, in 2017 mm. and 2018, and the other time being 2005. Of those 10 tournaments over the last two years, only one woman has won two. Do you know who that is? Don't look at the paper. Yes, I know. Caroline Wozniak. Yes, because after winning her first huge title at the end of last year, segues right into winning the Australian Open. And this happened to Amelie Moresmo in 2005, which is another year you mentioned. She had been number one before. She'd never won a major, wins the WTA finals, and wins the Australian Open just a few months later. So as we know, this tournament can be a harbinger for big success, and, and sometimes it's not. Who is your winner? Alina Svitolina. Arguably the woman who was least likely to win heading into the tournament. <laughs> Sloane's form and Alina's form going in were not auspicious. Sloane had a better Asian swing than she'd had in many years, since Ever. I think 2014. She hadn't even won a match in Asia in several years. But you get the sense that Sloane didn't need to be coming in on the back of top form to do well. Right. So like, the And you fact never that feel that way with her. This, the fact that Sloane wasn't showing peak Sloan form coming in, didn't make me think that, wow, Sloan's definitely not going to win this. Mm. Whereas Svetlina's been on kind of a downward spiral for the second half of the year. She has, She's had to defend her weight loss 
I, I feared that there was going to be a more prolonged downturn for her because at every turn she's asked about her weight. She didn't seem to be in fighting shape, right? A lot of people were criticizing how skinny she got, saying that wasn't the problem with her game. Like, the problem was a lack of huge weapons. The fitness was never an issue. And she needed the fitness this week to get through all those three-set matches. Right. And I almost feel like on this surface, in this week, playing only top eight players in long, drawn-out points and long matches, it was fitness and movement. Those were the big weapons that Svitolina needed. And the winner of this tournament had to have both of those. This is the, the flaw with this surface for me. We we're at a point where so many players are struggling with injury and having to take time off mid-year, take a couple of weeks off to recover from various injuries. And after the long slog of the season, we get to Singapore and the tournament is asking of these women to come in in peak top form to physically slug out this tournament. Mm. It's it's less about skill per se as it is about endurance, which I don't think is necessarily fair to them at this point of the year. Right. And if we have their long-term well-being as an interest. But at what point of the year is that surface ideal, if ever? We have an entire clay swing with high bounces, slow courts, where these grueling matches are a matter of uh, history and tradition but what is this court like what place does it have in tennis for me it doesn't like okay. i'm i'm over it we get such entertaining tennis throughout the course of the year that i don't need this we don't need the slowing of courts to have better tennis mm-hmm. or more entertaining rallies it's it's short-sighted it's damaging the product long term to my mind by putting added miles on these players bodies for for no reason that being said, I don't want to take away from Svitolina's win here. She was so fired up all week. Her athleticism is something that can be very exciting to watch. I know a lot of people are not super fired up by Svitolina's game, but watching her slug it out against Sloan in the final especially was exciting. She has a lot of pace on her forehand, especially the inside out, and she and Sloan have kind of similar games. Like, Sloan can unleash a lot more power on her forehand, but they're not totally different. So we had all these long, hard-fought matches leading up to the final. We had qualification scenarios where, well, how many games did you win? How many sets did you win? Because a lot of women, you know, didn't win a lot of matches getting to the semifinal stage. However, we got to the final with two undefeated women, the two best women all week were in the final. And Svitolina wins a whole ton of money. She wins $2 million. Sloan wins a million dollars. <laughs> Let's not underestimate mm-hmm. the incentive of all this money at the end of the year. And the prize money is even going up, like way up it's gonna next double year next in Shenzhen. Year. Yeah. Basically like winning a major. I think most folks would have put money on Sloan to win that final. Yeah. See, from the very first match, I underestimated Svitolina. I just didn't expect her to be plain. I didn't expect her to win matches. When she beat Petra 6-3-6-3, it was like, okay, I guess Alina is here. And then when she beat Pliskova in the next round, it was clear that this was kind of a statement-making tournament for her. I didn't necessarily predict her to win, 
but it was such a statement compared to her results in the past few weeks. What we saw in the results is that it was a definite disadvantage to the players who would probably prefer a quicker surface. Yeah. And Naomi Osaka. No, not necessarily, because she won in Indian Wells. But right. Pliskova. Kvitova didn't win a match here. No. And for all the talk about Wozniacki and her game not having power or whatever, we've seen her win on, on fast surfaces. She right. won in Australian fast surfaces. She won a grass court tournament this year. Burton's is somebody who's won in Cincinnati on a fast hard court. So to your point about Svitolina, perhaps this type of surface is exactly what she needed at this time to, to get mm-hmm. herself right. Yeah. Now, this semifinal between Sloan and Karolina Pliskova was something else. Sloan goes down 6-love, 2-love. Uh, it didn't look good. I mean, we all know that Sloan can never be counted out, but Pliskova was in kind of dominating mode. Sloan was nervous. Just things weren't working. Like, the shots weren't going in, and Pliskova couldn't miss. Although her first serve percentage wasn't that great, she didn't hit an ace in the match, but everything else was working. So all of a sudden, Sloan wins that one game, and here she comes. And that's literally how it went. It also felt that Pliskova had been building to this moment. It seemed that perhaps she was the player for whom momentum through the Asian swing could have led to a big title Mm -hmm. at this event. But Sloan did that Serena Williams thing and won one game and thought to herself, well, maybe I can win two games. And then she won two games. And then she just ran off with the third set like it was not even close. I think, you know, this is obviously tarnishing her finals record, much touted. She was 6-0 to start her career in finals. But it's showing that Sloane is a real competitor. And even though she may lose in a few finals here and there, everybody does it. And to be able to come back in a semifinal when you're losing that badly says a lot of things for the future of Miss Stevens, I think. She just tweeted about how this year was a year of a lot of fear and, and achieving new things and and confronting new things and this is what we saw here in Singapore she she stayed the course throughout the whole swing got to Singapore and put her best foot forward and while things weren't necessarily in her favor always especially in that semi-final against Pliskova being down eight love at that point (laughs) she was able to navigate through it the net effect of that is to take a whole bunch of positives into 2019 one of the things and the talking points that we heard from her in Singapore was that last year after her success at the US Open, so quick after coming back from her injury, you know, the player that she was after winning that US Open in terms of her stature didn't match how people perceived her beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so she had to battle those inner doubts as to what her place was in the game. We've heard from Kamau this year that She's somebody who does read and pay attention to what people are saying. And what she told us was that, you know, folks were saying, you know, she's just a a one-hit wonder. She's not going to be able to duplicate this. She's not going to be a long-term top 10 player. And what she did this year was, I don't know how important it was for her to prove other people wrong, but she proved herself right. And now she's ensconced in the top five. Like, Sloane Stevens is one of the undeniable top stars of women's tennis. Yes. 
I can't help but think a little bit of Sloane's like idea of haters is a bit fantastical. Perhaps she thrives on it. Right, but I don't think, you know, she and she's had this in the past where she pointed out journalists in the press room saying, you, 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 you all said this stuff. And it's actually just not true. Like, I can't remember a lot of reporters ever saying that she'd be a one-slam wonder after she won. I feel like maybe she heard it somewhere, but most of it is concocted to to sort of light a fire under her, mm-hmm. which is fine. Or it could be her own projection of her own insecurities. Maybe. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I mean, Sloane is Sloane. Like, Sloane and her place in the game is fraught, and it will forever be fraught because of what happened years ago. Right? Yeah, because she came for the Queen and back in 2014. Whatever interaction fandoms have with her, now it's colored by that, right? for better or worse. And so the best thing that she can do and what she has been doing is to put the results one after the other on the court. String them yeah. together, yeah. make Sloane Stevens undeniable, which is, if not where she is now, where she's heading very right. soon. Now, Svitolina, where is she heading soon? I know we don't like to get in the predictions game, but Svitolina up to this point has kind of been the premier five queen mm-hmm. over the past few years. She won a ton of titles in 2017. She was playing some lights out tennis in some of the biggest tournaments, except of course for the Grand Slams. So where does she go from here? I don't think it means anything. Really? We've always had this position where (laughs) you like to extrapolate too much in my mind from the year in Mm -hmm. championships. And last year proved me right because Caroline Uh won the Australian Open. That doesn't happen every year, obviously. I think we are undeniably in an era of women's tennis where anybody can win at any given time. Mm -hmm. And that's a check mark in Svitolina's favor because what's to stop her from winning the Australian Open? Right. Or the US Open next year or whichever tournament. We've had eight different slam winners from the last two calendar years. Right. We would be foolish not to expect somebody from the Svitolina Pliskova camp that that rung below to be one of the four next year. If there right. are to be four more new winners. There's there's no ce- I don't see a ceiling for her. But I'm not going to tell you what she's going to do mm-hmm. because she could just as easily carry on in the same vein. <laughs> you know, like, I I don't see star turn potential in her game, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Right. And that's my own bias in terms of what I perceive as being slam winning tennis. Well, the thing is, we've seen her outplay all the best players in women's tennis at one point or another. Don't you think? Yeah. Like we've seen her game, her playing her game be better than almost everyone. So there's no reason she can't win a slam. Just because her game may not be electrifying to a lot of people doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't have to be that to win a Grand Slam. You just have to be the best that those two weeks. Mm-hmm. But you put the expectation because of this win and then come June next year, we're like, well, what's happening to Svetlina? Why can't right. she do it? It's, right. it's a pointless exercise to my mind. <laughs> With this being the last year in Singapore, we have heard so much about the fan support, just the enthusiasm of the entire country. Apparently, the the facilities are amazing. Reem Abelil was on John Wertheim's podcast recently and talked about how there's a sporting museum, there's fitness centers, that just it's an incredible facility. And they 
Singapore has invested quite a lot in this tournament. Are we sad to see it leave? Selfishly for us, we want something that's more time zone friendly because right. it's, it's a struggle to watch these matches in real time. But that's not going to happen in the near future. Moving to Shenzhen, China, the financial investment is obviously massive. It, it's a huge coup for the WTA. They're not going to pass that up. But I would like to see the WTA finals in the Western Hemisphere, in South America, in Mexico, uh, somewhere in Africa. I know that they're going where there's huge investments at the moment, but I would love to see it travel. Listen, the Western world time and again tells women athletes that they're not as valuable. So if the WTA can build its brand in markets that want them, wants to spend and invest in them, then that's it's a no-brainer. Like, fuck the Fair West enough. at this point. <laughs> like, they've had their chance. They've had generations, decades of some of the greatest women athletes in history. And where has that led us in terms of how Western cultures value women mm -hmm. athletes? Well, I'm sure Larry Ellison would be glad to host the finals at Indian Wells. But he will probably be too busy with the PK Davis Cup. The doubles title in Singapore was won by the number two seeds, Timea Babush and Kristina Mladenovic. And uh, Dominic team is very proud of Kiki. <laughs> it was a minor upset. Krejcikova and Siniakova won two majors this year. Mladenovic's singles career has kind of plummeted, but her doubles career is on the come up. She's been a, a good doubles player for a while now. Yeah. The Babosh Madanovich team has been pretty successful this year as well. Mm -hmm. They're not there on a fluke. No, not at all. At least we were spared the sight of Coco Vandeweghe hoisting the trophy. <laughs> at least there's that. Wow, such sour grapes. You know, if Ash Barty, if she's good enough for Ash Barty, she's, well, no. I'm not going to finish that. Okay. <laughs> Coco Vandeweghe is now outside the WTA top 100. I like the rankings? The rankings. Or the race. What? The rankings. Are you serious? I am serious. It's been a dreadful singles year for her. You don't have to sound so happy about it. I do you, <laughs> Can you deduce any change in tone? She. I'm just telling you the facts here. This is the runner-up in Zhuhai last year, who almost single-handedly won the Fed Cup for the U.S. Australian Open semifinalist. U.S. Open semifinalist. In 2017. 2017. Yeah. So those points uh, were nowhere near recouped this year yeah. and so that's where she is in a similar position mr jack sock now sits at 150 in the live rankings mm -hmm. pending his performance in paris jack being the winner of paris last year what a difference a year and makes. made the atp finals he's clearly not making it this year those points are going to drop off he will basically have to qualify for the australian open I mean, he'll be there as one of the top-ranked doubles players. Right. So, you know, don't feel too bad. It seems it just seems a little too early to give up on a singles career because he's not that old. I'm not saying he should. <laughs> I'm just saying right. it's pretty clear that he's not that good he, he to is, be where he was. He is the best male doubles player in the world. You think so? Yeah. He's one of the best. But there is a very strong argument that Jack is the best. Okay. <laughs> I think a top 10 career was never in the cards. It was an incredible achievement last year. And mm. he could easily be another a, a top 30 singles player again. But I think... Wow. I think he's... Shoot for the stars. He's peaked. <laughs> he's, 
we've seen the, the, his peak and his valley. And uh, at some point... Didn't really want to see either. Potentially, he will return to the middle. <laughs> Roger Federer has, has just not stopped peaking. Nines across the board. <laughs> his ninth title in Basel and his 99th of his career. He defeated Romanian Marius Copil in the final, who had an incredible run to this final. He qualified for the tournament, then beat Ryan Harrison, the number three seed Marin Cilic, Taylor Fritz, number two seed Sasha Zverev, and then managed to get Federer to 7-6-6-4. Uh, Federer looked a bit scratchy here and there in the tournament. He was taken to three sets by Krajinovic who was uh, the runner-up in Paris last year, if you remember. He was challenged by Gilles Simon again. I mean, Simon has always had a a pretty healthy rivalry with Roger. Beat him, I think, in their first two matches ever. I remember he beat him in the Rogers Cup Mm -hmm. back when Roger was was king. This is like when we were starting... This must have been like 2008 or something. When we first started going to the Rogers Cup. Now, it remains to be seen, is Roger playing in Paris? I think he's still entertaining the possibility. He's still entered as of this recording. By the time you listen, that may be different. I mean, you do not want another screed from Guy Forget after he pulls out. Do you remember that last year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly, Roger has played a very abbreviated schedule the past two years, which is uncharacteristic for most of his career. He's played a pretty packed schedule. Most of his career, he was not 37. Right. But he has earned the right to plan his schedule according to his physical needs. And he has a very good shot in the year-end finals, I think. Novak is obviously the far and away favorite, but Roger wants to go into that tournament healthy. Federer says that at this point, he would rather win ATP 250s than make semifinals of Masters 1000s. (laughs) Really? I, he wants trophies. I, I see nothing wrong with that. Mm. What else is there for him to achieve? Just rack up the right. rack up the titles if you can. I mean, chase those victories, chase the titles. He's. I mean, really, at this point, he's just chasing Jimmy Connors. Like that's it. That's the only one who's left. Kevin Anderson scored the biggest title of his career in Vienna, in the tournament that one day possibly Dominic Team may could somehow likely maybe. At one point, win. Nine nine times? Like I, Roger and Basil? No, I'm talking about winning once. <laughs> like, this is a tournament that he obviously really wants to win. It's a he home tournament. Really, really There's a lot him. of pressure, and it, it hasn't happened yet. He was uh, decimated by Kei Nishikori. He was down 5-love in the first set, very nearly bageled, and lost uh, 6-3, 6-1 to Kei. Nishikori is, has had a string of good results. He has. I mean... Look at where he's come. He's gotten himself into contention for the ATP Finals this year, seemingly out of nowhere. He won a challenger title in February, beating Mackie McDonald. And I, at the time, I think we both remarked that he had a lot of integrity for trying to put his game back together at that level. Rather than looking for wild cards to big tournaments, he, he needed the practice. I think that's something you probably said. Probably yeah. something you didn't I didn't say. <laughs> because integrity is a very loaded noun in that sense. Mm. I don't think I would have done quite all that. Oh. <laughs> because it was obviously colored by, 
you know, wild cards being handed out to other people. Like who? I think that was the comparison you would have been making back then, like if my memory serves to correctly. Whom? I know the listeners can piece that, that together. Was ve- that was very 2017. Mm. It was over at that I'm point. I'm just saying, it sounds like you had something to say about something else. That person then. won the Tianjin Slam. They mm. didn't need wild cards anymore. That person is ramping up the fitness for 2019. Mm-hmm. K unfortunately has lost his ninth consecutive final we were talking a few weeks ago about how k has made a few finals this year and he's bound to win one of them right like he's he's taking all the necessary steps he's moving in the right direction he played well and uh it just wasn't enough to get past anderson anderson moves very well for a guy who's like six foot ten remarkably well even it's back-to-back straight set losses in finals yeah. He may have lost to Nadal in straight sets as well in the yeah. spring. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it go, how far in it goes Carlo. back into 2017, like losing sets in finals. Oh, but at least the last the last one against Medvedev was not pretty, and then this one was three six six seven to Kevin Anderson. Mm-hmm. To be fair, Kevin was serving well. He hit thirteen aces. The forehand was working incredibly. Like I said, his movement is much better than it should be for such a big guy. K is still exciting to watch. I am really a big fan. I like his Uniqlo kits, obviously. He was wearing a similar color palette to Sloan this week. They're both runners up. The purple. Yeah, purple and red. Yeah, he's been wearing the purple Somebody for a described while. it as plum and tomato. I can't remember <laughs> who it was. You'd mentioned that Nishikori has come a long way to be at a point where he could qualify for London with the title Kevin Anderson locked up his spot in London for the first time. That's exciting. It is. And Kevin is firmly ensconced in the top 10 now. Oh, you're it, using my word? <laughs> ensconced? Is that your word? I, I just you used it. it. Like just now? <laughs> no, well, like a, a couple minutes oh, ago. Oh, I need to brush up on my listening skills, clearly. <laughs> but it's it's no fluke now when Kevin wins a title or gets to the late stages of a major. He is a top 10 player. He's there. I think that for a little while, there was this perception that Kevin was just another of these tall, big-serving guys, like another John Isner, but not as good. And now, it he's turns out he's, better. He's better. <laughs> right. And he adds so many more layers and texture to the ATP right. and men's tennis. Mm-hmm. And tennis culture writ large. So bravo. Now, for the remaining two spots, it's going to be amongst decided amongst Marin Cilic, Dominic Team, Nishikori, and John Isner. Those are the only four men with a mathematical chance of making London. Everybody else, the the one just below Isner is Borna George. He is without a possibility of making London. Right. So it's those four. Chilich has the strongest chance. It looks like it's maybe Dominic Team's spot to lose at this point. Right. They are seven and eight currently, but everything rides on their performances in Paris. Last episode, we just asked you, well, we asked each other as well, of the (laughs) current crop of next-gen stars, would-be stars, of which we listed maybe nine or ten within the top 50, which were the three that we were going to take along with us in the future. And honestly, I don't remember which three I said. I think I said Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and Chong. Uh Uh-huh. I think I said a lot. (laughs) But 
the very next week, we have three first-time winners on the ATP Tour, all of them next-geners. Is is Kyle Edmund a next-gener? Uh, I think a, he's aged out of it a little bit. He's like but 22, he's, 23. He's, he's still super young. Right. So Kyle Edmund, he won his first title. Tsitsipas won his first title. And then Karen Hachanov, he had already won a title, but he won again. So that was a, a banner week for young men's tennis. Mm-hmm. You have here that Russian tennis is looking very promising. And that's true. We mentioned Hachanov, Medvedev has the second most hardcourt wins this year. He has been quietly building these up. Now he has three titles on the year. The only person who has more hardcourt wins is Juan Martin Del Potro, the Indian Wells winner. Not to mention Daria Kazatkina won one of her home tournaments in Moscow, beating Jabour in a long final. She's been showing promise for, for quite a while. And just previously, Gasparian back from injury, had won a title. Mm-hmm. So things are looking up for Russian tennis on the men and women's sides. This past week in Singapore, we got a bit of troubling news from Caroline Wozniacki. Yeah, really terrible news. Caroline announced that she had been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis earlier in the year, which is an autoimmune disorder, causes stiffness in the joints, a lot of pain, fatigue. She realized she thought she had a virus because she was feverish. She couldn't lift her arms above her head. She thought she had mono. Right. And unfortunately, it turns out that it's rheumatoid arthritis, which goes to show her fight and her perseverance to get through this entire season to win another big title in the fall. There were we and a whole bunch of people projecting and talking all kinds of shit about what we're projecting for Caroline, whether she's this close to getting married or having a kid, calling it quits, based on reading these tea leaves of her performances this year. Right. The inconsistency. And it turns out that her struggles in the middle part of the year, heading into the fall, had to do with this just terrible diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Which, sadly, similarly to Venus Williams, who was diagnosed with another autoimmune disease, Sjogren's Syndrome, in her early 30s. Now we have two of the top women's players of the past 10-15 years dealing with this type of disorder. Caroline seems motivated that she's going to continue her career. Apparently this can be managed. It can even go into remission in some cases. I just hope that if... Like we said earlier, if Caroline does want to move on and have a family and all that, that it's 100% her decision and not because of this illness. Or wants to move on, not get married, and not have children. Right. (laughs) Whatever she wants to do. Whatever is on the docket for her, I hope that it is fully her decision. One of those things that happens whenever we see a diagnosis like this is we get all the armchair physicians Mm -hmm. on Twitter and whatnot, giving you anecdotal evidence as to what to expect, what's happened for the third cousin twice removed in their lives. (laughs) And no, 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 it's absolutely a death sentence for her career. No, 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 it's not that bad. She's just, you know, making an excuse. These are extremes of what we saw, but at the same time, like I I wonder where that impulse comes from. In a time like this, Mm. 
other than to just be like, well, damn, that sucks. Right. I'm sorry, Caroline. I'm or, sorry well, you're going through well, that. Well, damn, I hope you bit, get the best treatment possible. Yeah. But In some wild news, some mm-hmm. of the wildest news I've seen in forever. <laughs> we need to go track down. <laughs> Where you just the, said tracks. Where in the world is Grigor Dimitrov's hair mm-hmm. right now? Yeah. And Where is it? <laughs> Where... It's gone. I've been... I was so blindsided by this. It was like... We we sat across from him in Cincinnati, and you even remarked how good his hair looked. Mm-hmm. You said that to me. How good everything looked. And <laughs> I woke up one day, and I see these pictures, and I'm like, is it April 1st? Is it a Halloween costume? Like, what's going on? Right, what's the right. reason for this? Like, is he... As somebody said, he looks like Jill Muller now. Is he trying to... <laughs> Like, <laughs> who, you know, is a handsome enough guy, is he but tra- Grigor is like a model. Is he trying to imitate Gilles Muller? Like how Wozniacki was imitating Serena with the the fake boobs and, oh, we and butt? Were, oh, we're really going there? I don't know. I'm just saying, I thought something must be a foul with this. Mm-hmm. I, I refu- For a, a good week or so, I just didn't even interact with it mentally. Because it, you couldn't believe it that it was It didn't make true. sense, and I did not want it to make yeah. sense. Long story short, Grigor buzzed his hair. Long story very short. (laughs) And he he had like a teaser photo of him in the gym and you saw the side of his head with his buzzed hair and was like, Oh, oh girl, like this this is sexy. Oh. At first, because you couldn't tell like what it looked like. And then when he finally revealed the whole thing, the full Monty, if you realize there were actually like patches missing. Now, Multiple patches. I don't want to go too far into this because hair karma is real, and I'm trying to hold on to this hair. I have a very thick head of hair in my early 30s, and I do not want it to go anywhere. So you're, let's you, leave it at that. You're hoping to remain follicled. Exactly. It, oh, Lord. Anyway, we know, we know this week, well, just from the last couple of days, that... Andre Agassi is in the Dimitrov camp on mm-hmm. a somewhat official basis. Not going to be like full term or full time or whatever, but he's consulting right. with Valvador you know and Grigor. He does not do that permanent thing. And I was like, well, damn. Of all the times for Andre to show up publicly, it's when Grigor's lost his hair. <laughs> like, who better to it's, guide him through this moment of his career than Andre Agassi? It's bald solidarity, man. <laughs> Transitioning from one of the wildest things that we've seen to one of the most emotional and just life-affirming things we've seen, Lena's commercial slash movie teaser thing that came out last week, mm-hmm. A-plus um, amazing. Who knew that Lena is an actress? Like, not just like, oh, she's not too bad. She's actually legit good. <laughs> I don't want to say too much if you haven't seen it because I didn't know anything about what it was about before I watched it and I was not ready. Paramedics, I was not ready. I was telling you about it for days and you're like, not now, not now. I finally watched it. I have to go to bed. And I really really needed to be alone to watch it for obvious reasons. Yeah, you didn't know. It was embarrassing. You didn't know that. (laughs) You didn't know that. You're just dragging your feet, (laughs) ignoring good advice from somebody you should be trusting by this point. 
Like, if Lina wants to be the next Michelle Yeoh, I am here for it. Shall we get to some of the more heavy news that's been circulating? Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic are signed up to play in this exhibition match in Saudi Arabia on December 22nd. They signed the contract last year with the government of Saudi Arabia, not a private company. And But it was announced only recently. Right. So some uh, tweets came out which were part of probably the official promotion, and they were very poorly timed. About a day after the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, there's a lot of pressure on both of them to pull out, and they have been uh, ambivalent. Novak has finally made a statement. It's the first statement I've seen in Paris this week. It's not a statement. He was asked in press. They both were. Right. But it functions as a statement. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're both kind of learning more about the situation, and we we don't know what we're going to do yet, but we're educating ourselves. This was after he said, I've made it a point in my entire career to not be political in any way, shape, or form. Which is super interesting. And it read like, (laughs) well, damn, now I'm forced into this political situation, and I really don't want to. Well, you know what? As my... As my grandmother would say, tough titties. Your grandmother said that? I think so. <laughs> Somebody in my family did. Uh, I'm saying, Nova, neither Novak nor Rafa has existed outside of politics ever. No. It's just not possible. Especially someone like Novak, who is a national symbol in Serbia and has been kind of a an image of Serbian nationalism since the, the mid-2000s. He cannot, he does not have the luxury of existing outside of politics. At the very least, Novak gives the impression that he's a somewhat well-read person. Right. That he's attuned to things going around him in the world. Rafa has said, at least on one occasion, not in as many words, but he doesn't read. <laughs> like, yeah. there was a, a thing going around this week where years ago, Rafa was asked, what book are you reading now? And he goes, well, nothing. But I started with the Da Vinci Code But then the movie came out. It's quicker, no? (laughs) (laughs) Rafa is very outspoken about things that affect him directly. Home stuff, Mallorca stuff with the flooding that happened Mm -hmm. recently. That stuff is very important to him. And, you know, as human beings, we, we do have the right to be selective about what we find outrageous, about what we hold dear to our hearts. Sure. But... I didn't mean that in a good thing. My point is, but with their status as two of the biggest stars in sporting history, not just tennis, Mm. comes added responsibility. And the optics, I hate to use that word, but the optics of going to Saudi Arabia at a time like this to play this government-sanctioned PR exhibition... You know, to put a nice little glistening brush over all the fucker that's going on. Because that's how these governments function. It's the history of sport. Sport has always been used as a, as a political tool to enhance problematic politicians, to, to be used as propaganda, essentially, to, to cover all manner of ill that's going on, actually going on within governments, right? We've seen that in the World Cup stage with Russia the Olympic stage with Russia, it's not new. Like, this is not unforeseen. Hell, the 1936 Olympics were an entire facade 
the entire thing was propaganda to make Nazism more palatable and for people to, to say, well, everything's fine in Berlin. Don't look here. The moment you're taking millions of dollars, presumably it has to be at least seven figures from the Saudi government to play this exhibition, you assume that risk that some something is going to happen and you're going to be held accountable for it. Right. I mean, this event in particular was part of a very specific project in modernizing Saudi Arabia, changing the image of the country to the outside world. And now we understand that that project was not necessarily sincere. It wasn't it wasn't fundamental. It was more about PR, right? And this this tennis event exists as part of that because it was planned last year when Mm -hmm. that was all that was full throttle oh that's fine but then now we have a situation where we know that a whole bunch of shit has gone down a journalist has been murdered uh it's (laughs) it's a targeted assassination a wild scenario Mm. that was then covered up with the aid of the u.s government in all likelihood like this is something that it has far-reaching global political ramifications. This is a particularly fraught time to be involved with the Saudi government. And the fact that you signed this contract however long ago does not then give you a blanket pass to then participate in this situation. I think what you want to pivot to now is some of the, the considerations that may be at play that we may not necessarily have access to, aren't privy to, or aren't really considering that were brought to light by Reem Abilil on John Wardham's right. podcast. Reem is a, an Egyptian journalist. She writes for a Sport 360, which is a sport newspaper based out of Dubai. And she is one of the few active tennis journalists from North Africa and the Middle East. As she mentioned on the podcast that she's at almost every tournament she goes to one of, if not the only Arabic speaker in the press room. Or sometimes at the entire tournament. <laughs> so our perspective is less incisive, is less essential on this p- particular issue. And that's why I'm not really I'm not really drilling too hard on either side here. Reem's insights on the podcast were that this is a very complicated situation, that she's not insisting that they should pull out or that they should play, that Obviously, a lot of nations in the world abuse human rights in various ways. There, uh, I mean, do we stop playing in Russia? Brazil just elected a fascist president. Do we stop the tournaments there? If we disagree with the actions of the United States around the world, do we boycott the United States? The thing is, this is a contract with the government. So any action by the players to pull out of this, I think will be perceived as a boycott. It'll be perceived as a direct condemnation of the actions of that government. And are Rafa and Novak prepared for that? I don't think I don't think that they have the knowledge to articulate it, first of all, but I also don't think that they have the desire to just to wade into that that issue at all. I, I don't know how much I put stock in that argument. Like, what is the actual contract? That's that's one thing. Like, is this is this a relationship that's not just a one-off? Is it part of a contractual agreement spanning 
years after their retirement that includes already things that have happened behind mm-hmm. the scenes that we don't know about what what would make this a more tenuous situation for Rafa and Novak than we think it is right like but I feel like they could probably get out of it but what I'm saying is if it if it's part of a more long-term relationship this could hurt future earnings. And then that's an even bigger problem. Yeah, that's what <laughs> if I If like. this is part of a long-term relationship. Agreed. But you I'm know? saying that may be part of their considerations that we don't know about. Does it make them a target going forward in this global political climate if they were to boycott? Mm. And it be seen as a, a grand political rejection of the Saudi government? Do they then have folks projecting all kinds of things onto them that that makes them in physical danger oh going forward I, I doubt it but i don't know right i just don't see these two as the leaders who are going to boycott apartheid south africa for example that that's that's where i'm trying to get to mm-hmm. is it that we are making excuses for them to not do something that's to my mind, fairly simple and straightforward. Right. Because they just don't have the desire to do it, or the wherewithal, or the chutzpah, or the intellect. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm just... I can't get past this idea that a lot of world governments, even first world governments that are better at covering up their crimes, engage in some really horrifying practices. And I don't know. Are we, Like, are we picking and choosing... Which countries we disagree with? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't think that means that you can't then hold these two to a certain standard. Okay. When, in fact, it's an exhibition. It's not a sanctioned tournament. It's an exhibition with a stated political purpose. And they're collecting seven figures for mm-hmm. it. You know, right. like it's very right. transactional. What is the benefit of doing this to their career outside of lining their pockets? And so while... It's it's unseemly to sit here in moral judgment of them because mm. we are not in that position and we don't know, like I said, the totality of the considerations that, that they're doing. It's it's ugly. I find right. no matter right. how I try to give the benefit of the doubt or consider something else, it's an ugly, ugly look for two of the three biggest stars of men's tennis and two of the biggest stars in all of men's sport to be then doing this at right. this point. I. I get it, and I feel that aside from the paycheck, I don't see what they gain from this. Maybe there's some language in the contract that say if you do not fulfill this for reasons outside of injury, that we can come at you like tenfold financially, or there's some ramifications right. that they'll like, have to deal with. What, I don't know. What court in Europe is going to give a shit about that? Yeah, but then you're then embattled in the courts for, mm. what, a year to three years for like something that you you absolutely don't want to have mm-hmm. to deal with like athletes in that's this like that's all speculation though. it is but athletes in their position they're promised you've reached the pinnacle you just go around the globe and collect money <laughs> that's what you do right you right. line your pockets you're set for life and you can something problematic comes up just don't talk about it right let it go away for it's a couple like, of weeks i exist outside of politics you know like that bubble will insulate me from all of this and Novak said he he does his best to stay apolitical, but in this day and age, to be s- explicitly apolitical is pretty damning for us. 
for me, can't speak for you, for me, on this podcast, <laughs> both of them, I'm side-eyeing both of them real hard. Mm. Pivoting to Deadspin's article about the most boring athletes of all time, <laughs> Pete Sampras, a lot of tennis people were very upset, mostly men. Paul Anacone, who was his former coach, uh-huh. came out and was going to bat for him and on he Twitter should. all he, of the that's, place. That's his job. He absolutely should do mm-hmm. that. But... I think a lot of people share the sentiment that Pete Sampras is just not that exciting. I lived through Sampras's career, the peaks of it, from mm-hmm. 94 onward. Mm-hmm. That was my impression. Right. And that was part of why the rivalry with Agassi was so great, even though statistically it might not have been, looking back now in hindsight. But right, but it wasn't a blowout. It was no. like 20 to 14 or something. But the visual representation and manifestation of that rivalry was a rivalry of distinct opposites that yeah. you could see. Mm-hmm. It was the flashy Agassi with the baseline game against the more monotone, shall we say, mm-hmm. <laughs> bland, workmanlike efficiency of Sampras. Which I just, this just dawned on me, is almost a mirror of Navratilova Evert. Because Martina had that flashy, athletic, serve-and-volley game. But Chrissy had the placid, calm personality. But like the games Sampras. are switched in that Exactly, analogy. exactly. It's, it's like a mirror. I, I don't know if I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think Chrissy was pretty exciting to watch back in her day. Uh, fine. <laughs> I'm not saying she's boring at all. I'm but just that, saying that, was that, the point I was making that Agassi had the, uh, the sort of explosive personality that you expect from an aggressive net-charging player, right? Oh. No? Fair. Fine. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I did not think that this was something that needed to be litigated again. Of all the athletes <laughs> listed in that article, I thought that was one of the more uncontroversial choices martina hingis was there like girl which is wild martina hingis is one of the most controversial athletes especially in tennis over the last 20 years so i don't know how she made it on that list i mean beat up her boyfriend did cocaine lost the french open final while she was winning handily because she crossed the net underhand serve in a grand slam final (laughs) weeping on her mother's shoulder like the brattiness like press conference gold you may not like martina but she was anything but boring she may have been lacking a formal education but (laughs) she brought her street smarts well observed so there was that i i really with everything going on going on in the world and tennis like this was something i could not believe was actually playing out in real time right because it was clearly it was not meant to be taken seriously the list those lists are kind of a troll job anyway yeah you took the bait Right. And now you're doing this. Check your blood pressure. <laughs> Go get a checkup. See if your blood sugar levels mm. are okay. Isn't like. she back in Poland already? <laughs> but I will say it does help situate Sampras as kind of a tragic figure at this point. Because he's somebody who achieved so much. And for as much as I didn't care for his game, he achieved a lot. He was incredibly talented. And he must have thought when he retired with 14 slams... Well, damn, I've, I've reached the mount. Mm. And let me let me sit up here on this perch and watch for the next couple decades. Yeah. And it didn't even last 10 years. Uh, <laughs> like, this is crazy. Okay. And not only did it not last 10 years, he's been b- bounced off his perch by 
two more people, three men, have stolen his thunder. And while he's tied with Novak right now, ain't nobody out here is willing to make an argument that Pete Sampras was a better player Mm. than Novak Djokovic. Like, just no. So, like, he is at most fourth best at this point. When did he retire? 2002? Or something right, like that? his last match was yeah, in 2002. 16 years after he's retired. Mm-hmm. He's almost an afterthought because of this era of tennis. And perhaps that's what's driving this argument now. Because folks are, the, the writer of the article and folks who, who believe that stuff about Sampras may think of him as an easy target now because he's kind of an afterthought. Right. And he's also not really a part of the game anymore, which has made it easier to yeah. forget him. He was the presumed GOAT. In 2002. It was him and Rod Laver. And people thought that record was not going to be broken anytime soon. And it was, I mean, obviously we know what happened since then. But I think the fact that Pete Sampras is not really part of, he's not a commentator, he's not a coach, you don't see him around at tournaments, he's really vanished from memory for a lot of people. And it's, it's, uh, it's unfair, even if you weren't really a fan when he was playing. This is one of those episodes where quite a few things happened off the court for us to talk about. Well, not just off the court, but on the court. When I say off the court, I mean outside of the actual tennis tennis. Right. Like, outside of the play. Yes. So one such thing. Stefanos Tsitsipas. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Take it away, James. Yeah. This video was circulating the other day about showing... Stefanos pulling a racket out of its bag. So the ball kid was holding the plastic bag and he was kind of whipping it back and forth to get it out of the bag. And it was it was just not you know coming off the heels of the Verdasco thing screaming at a ball kid and it just wasn't really cute. And of course a lot of people pounced on that and says, "Oh look, this is your new ATP bay." Mhm. Because he has that standing now. He is one of the big fan favorites now. Right. People think he's gorgeous. He's sweet. He has that eccentric personality. I mean, a lot of people are treating him like Angel Baby. You know, innocent. No, I'm not. I don't even think that. I think it's more like Tennis Jesus. That's what I think he is. (laughs) He's got the hair. You put Mm. the crown on him and he's been crucified (laughs) for all our sins. He is here to save us. Stefano Tsitsipas is here to save us from the evil of men's tennis. <laughs> and the he's anti, not... The anti-Medvedev, yeah, if you will. He's not that bad to look at either. You right. Know, like he, has a, a, he has a movie star face. He's a he cute has, tennis Jesus. Right. And he is also kind of a... Uh, what is it? Like a YouTuber? A, vi- a videographer? In a his, vlogger. A vlogger. That's the word. I'm so fucking old that I couldn't pick that word out from the ether. Anyway... It wasn't a good look for Stefanos, and he swiftly apologized. Because he was tagged in a bunch of shit. Mm. He was tagged, tagged in the original video. Right. And so he responded to the original video, and he said, you know, look, damn, like, that's unacceptable. In no way was I trying to be disrespectful or aggressive toward the, the player. Mm. I know they have a job, whatever, blah, the blah. The Yeah, again, that's unacceptable. I apologize for my actions, mm-hmm. he said. And it's like, well, damn, ain't that a lesson in this day and age for somebody to be called out on something and be like, yeah, I fucked up. Sorry. Right. And Hurley Tennis, Jason on, on Tennis Twitter, he said, you know, it's it's symptomatic of this time that we, especially in 2018, 
well, symptomatic and emblematic, both, mm. in 2018 that I'm sorry, a simple I'm sorry when you've actually done something wrong is no longer part of the the lexicon. It's so quickly disappearing from acceptable behavior. (laughs) It's like outside the Everton window at this point. So if you say I'm sorry, people honestly cannot understand what you mean. Like, Like, why would you do that? (laughs) Like, it's not it's not English. Uh, But he did something that players in their 30s seemingly are incapable of doing. Fernando Verdasco is out here blocking everybody who tries to... Who dares question him. And so that was refreshing. And right. I honestly, I, I do like Tsitsipas. And so I was, I was pleased that there was this positive turn of events faced with the situation. And then he How follows well, up. He follows up to then ask <laughs> the Twitter fellow or woman who posted this video of him, can you please take it down? I don't know how this benefits anybody at this point. <laughs> Something to that effect. I'm like, girl. Just leave it. No. Just get off social media, play tennis, and just leave it alone. It only undercuts him like 25%. Right. It wasn't like a full reversal, of course, but <laughs> it was not a good look. Right. You know, like, the, you, you took ownership of it, own it. This is a teachable moment, not just for you, but for other people. Mm-hmm. Like if the ball kids' parents were like, listen, take this down. I don't want my kid out there. Right. That's one thing. But like, this is like less than a day after you've apologized. It'll go away. You've done your bit. Nobody's mad about this anymore. Mm. And I should say that several people were saying, well, the ball kid was smiling. It was it was all in good fun or whatever. It doesn't really matter to Objection, me. Objection, like, your honor. <laughs> Even if the ball kid thought it was funny, like it it wasn't a negative interaction for her, I just feel like this image of players disrespecting ball kids as if they're servants, that doesn't need to be out there. That young girl thought it was funny, sort of, like that was her experience, but his intent wasn't wasn't a little tug-of-war joke. It was frustration. And And, like he could have hurt her. Yeah, she could have gotten hurt. Yeah. The point of bringing this up was to, the main point was to contrast Tsitsipas with Verdasco. Right. Because that was not how to go about it with Verdasco. <laughs> right? Because he is a grown man, mm-hmm. older than me, older than you. He's that old? He's old. Oh. Yeah. Who is, is kind of an emblem of how not to handle it when you're called out. He's emblematic of how not to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But looking good, he is A plus in that category. I disagree. <laughs> but how not to do a Naomi Osaka costume? How do you not do it? This was the very first thing that was put on this agenda a week mm-hmm. ago, and it's the last thing we'll talk yeah. about. Not even Halloween in Japan. Not nope, even. Not even Halloween. Not even. Just any old day. Retweeted onto my timeline by my friend Bianca, who has been living in Japan. As a Jamaican expat for the last God, 10, 10 like years, 11 years, mm. 11 or so years. And there are these Japanese women dressed as and some boys. Okay. I was not that. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't look that close. I wasn't wrapped up in trying okay. to figure out sex in that moment. Mm. You know, it was neither here nor there. Besides <laughs> the point. 
and they're out here in these streets, these Japanese streets in broad daylight in blackface. Yeah, yeah. The hair looked good on a lot of them. Sure, I mean, anyone can put on a wig. Yeah, they, they got a lot of parts of the costume right, but... Except one big one. The biggest part. So how not to dress like Naomi Osaka is to wear blackface. That is the answer to that rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. And apparently this is not, I mean, this is something that I've heard for years in Japan specifically. Right. That the, the sensitivities to, to race in Japan and an understanding of the gravity of blackface and how that plays in Western culture doesn't exist there. You know, like, there's a, there's a divide there. Right. But however... However. I, I don't care. Don't you, care. And well, however, is that there are a lot of black people living in Japan mm-hmm. who are continually explaining why it's a problem for them. Yes. <laughs> Every time it happens. And there so, l- like, it's not, it's not like you can say you've never heard it. And to be a black or brown person in Japan, or China, specifically can be a tiring experience. I've heard from countless friends who say that people are always coming up to them trying to take their picture just because they're black. Part of that is that they'd never seen a black person before, so there's a novelty to it. The random grabbing of the hair, touching the hair. My point is, this is an ongoing thing. Like it's, This is the manifestation of what I've heard and known for a while, but it was still jarring to see. And still, obviously, something that people don't know about don't give a fuck about (laughs) i mean lord knows that over here in canada and the united states we have plenty of white racists dressing up in blackface we're not giving them a pass we've just been through the megan kelly thing and she wasn't even talking about name osaka (laughs) (laughs) there's just so much blackface to talk about that she didn't even australia's got their blackface problem but it was wild Not surprising, but still wild. (laughs) And when we said that, wow, winning the US Open is going to open doors for Naomi Osaka and she's going to explode in Asia, this is not what we had in mind. Well, not all the doors will be good. On that note, thanks for listening to episode 140 of The Body Serve. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. You can find me at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find us at The Body Serve on both Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.